0: We're going to read the first four verses of chapter 8 for this message. Last week we talked about the the stoning of Stephen and just a a powerful um, and horrific scene that was. And in chapter 8 it resumes the narrative and it says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death by that stoning death. And on that day... Great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison, and therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Amen. This message, I believe, um, will hopefully convey something to you today. It will convey the fact that the beliefs that we have in our lives are of deep consequence. That whether it is a faith in Jesus, a belief in something of our family, a belief in a way of life, that all of those faiths, all of the things that we believe in, have a certain consequence, a repercussion in our lives. And the greatest consequence of believing in Jesus, Stephen endured. And hopefully we'll see how this great persecution of the early church and what it accomplished for the church, how that will apply to our lives today. The day of Stephen's stoning that it's recalling here was one of the most significant days of the early church. Um, It was a pivot. It really opened the door for a different type of season. That what the early Christian experienced before this day, drastically changed on this day. And it was open season that suddenly not just from the religious establishment where there are accusations and and persecutions. Now, in a sense, it was for the open public, open season for hunting. And the, the general perspective, perception, and interaction that a common folk had with a believer in Jesus now suddenly changed. And on this day, as stated in our passage, a great persecution opened up to believers in Jesus. Uh, It's hard to even imagine what it would be like to live in that moment. I, I, I look back at my own faith and I think, when were the times when I was persecuted for my faith? When were the times when I was treated badly for anything that I believed in? or by who I followed, or by what I wanted to do in my life. And I cannot recollect a time where such a decision in my life evoked such a response. But on this day, if you believed in Jesus, there was now a target on your back, and you now were being hunted. And it's hard for me to to really fathom that because I haven't experienced it so much. But before this day there was an undercurrent of persecution and there were chief priests and religious leaders that would accuse or arrest the apostles or the the leaders of this Christian movement. But now this underswell, this undercurrent, it broke free of the surface and now it was not just relegated to the apostles being persecuted by the priests, it was now the common believer of Jesus being persecuted by the society. And Saul, being a young man in his prime, a religious man, was kind of at the center of this. He was was really rallying the public to say, let's put these folks in prison. Let's put them not just in an uncomfortable situation, but let's now snuff it out. And I was trying to think about in history when there were such moments where where the door flung open and there was this mass persecution. And as I was thinking back, I immediately went to the Jewish Holocaust. My mind went there and I did a little bit of research. And lo and behold, I found a hinged date. November the 9th of 1938. They call it Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass. A few days prior to this day, early November, there was a young Jewish teenager. He killed a German political officer. And this was most likely in retaliation because his parents, being Jews, were expelled from Germany and they were caught in this transitionary period and space between Germany and Poland. And out of hurt and spite and anger, this 17-year-old Jewish boy killed a German political officer. And the propaganda minister, Joseph Goebel, he took this moment, this instant, this murder, and he rallied the common public on a campaign. And on this day, it is called the night of broken glass because it was symbolic of the shards of glass that lined the streets of Germany because all of the shops, synagogues, and homes of Jewish folks were either destroyed, looted. Hundreds of people, thousands of people were either killed or imprisoned. And police officers were instructed, I want you to arrest as many Jewish people as possible and throw them in prison. And as I was researching and thinking about this day, here are some of the hard numbers. 30,000 German Jews were arrested for the crime of merely being a Jew. 267 synagogues were destroyed. 7,500 Jewish shops were vandalized and looted. And this day, many historians say, is what fueled many, many anti-Jewish legislation laws. And this day served as the, the spark that started this huge emigration of Jews to leave Germany. And it's no wonder they left. If you stayed, it was a death sentence. It was being incarcerated for being nothing but simply a Jew. Not because you committed a crime, but because of who you were. And I see this represented here in the beginning of chapter 8. Simply because you, you pledged allegiance to Christ, you followed Him, you were considered a Christian by no crime that you've done, by nothing else, by simply being a Christian, you were now imprisoned. And it sparked something in this early church. Here, as recorded, it says they scattered, just like the Jews scattered out of Germany out of fear for their lives. And these Christians were now just being pushed out of Jerusalem and they were going anywhere they could hide. And it says, devout men stayed behind to bury the body of Stephen. And you must have been devout if you would put yourself, your life on the line to give a respectable death and burial to a comrade, to a man, a brother of the faith. And so the apostles and these devout men stayed behind as everyone, I mean, you can imagine, they're just picking up a few of their precious belongings and just running out the door, leaving their homes, leaving their shops, leaving everything that they've known and just running for dear life. And these apostles bury Stephen, these devout men, and there is this exodus that is happening and they're leaving, running out of Jerusalem. And on this day, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum says this, The events of Kristallnacht represented one of the most important turning points in national socialist anti-Semitic policy. The passivity with which most German civilians responded to the violence signaled to the Nazi regime that that the German public was prepared for more radical measures. And this is... What's happening in the undercurrent of Acts 8. As Saul now, Stephen is stoned. He didn't do anything wrong. He was appointed as a servant of tables. He preached the gospel. He performed miracles and you can imagine people were being made well. They were being healed. Their condition in life was being bettered. And through this good work and this thing that he was doing, he was now being persecuted, arrested and ultimately stoned of a very violent death. He wasn't given a proper trial. He was marched to the outskirts of the city and he was hurled and killed. And on that day, when Saul then, all of these people that were persecuting them, throwing their robes at his feet, and him seeing the reaction of these few religious elite, how they treated Stephen, it signaled something. This is now the switch. And from that day, there became these waves of violence that would go out, just grabbing every man and woman in sight that was a Christian and throwing them in jail. that there was a general sentiment in the public of the day here that it was okay to persecute, arrest, and even kill Christians for their faith. And this brings me back. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about that one priest, Gamaliel, right? And the counsel that he gave. And he says, if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. Speaking of the Christian movement. And this was his counsel to his comrades of the faith of his fellow chief priests. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And on this counsel, I see here in chapter 8, this test being lived out. If it was of men, it would be snuffed. But if it is of God, it will persevere. It will survive the violence, the suffering, the persecution. And so now, as we see how Christians responded, would this Christian movement survive this great wave of persecution? Would it be the match when you throw the bucket of water, it would then just go out? Would there be something that could survive this storm? Would there be a power, an inner strength of this faith that could really say, I will not fold for life or death? being well-treated or mistreated, with this faith, live on. And as we know the rest of the book of Acts, it does. But it really is putting this counsel to the test. It is saying, is my faith of men or is it of God? Am I doing something because people are doing it or am I doing something because God has called me? Am I following the sentiment of the public or is there a spirit inside of me that pushes me onward. This is the test of faith. And you don't have to live in Acts 8 for that test to be lived out. At every stage of our lives, whether we are a young child of faith or an old man, whether we are in school or in the workplace or in the home, that that test is lived out. That we are called to pass this test. That am I following the words of a man or the words of God? Am I following opinion, a movement of people, or am I being led by the Spirit of God? Faith is consequential, and that really is the first thing that I say to you. That believing in Jesus is of great consequence and I want to take that back just a little bit and say faith in anything is of consequence. If you believe in something or a way of life that will force you to make a decision to stand up for that way of living because there will always be a pushback. That when you say, I want this to be like this, there will be a pushback for that. I want to support this person. There will be a pushback for that. I want to have this. There will be a pushback for that. A belief in anything will have a consequence. And I will have to stand up for that faith, that belief. And there must be a courage that really supports something of substance and of meaning that is underneath the surface of that belief for it to pass the test. And if you want to think of a fire, right? And there are different materials that can pass through the flames here. And if you have some wood, stacks of sticks passing through in time, this will burn away. But if you have different materials... It will be refined. And that the same heat, the same flames will cause one to be destroyed and another to be made purer. And it is the same with faith. That when it is passed through the flames of persecution, my faith will be tested if it is of sticks or if it is of a refined metal. The flames will, will tell you. And the flames don't cause the gold to be gold or the sticks to be sticks. It merely reveals what it is. And if you think about what suffering and persecution is in our lives, when we go through a season of hardship and we act bitterly, that season of hardship didn't make us bitter. It merely revealed the bitterness inside. And so if I'm stuck in this reaction of this hard circumstance. I need not blame the circumstance. I need to start looking inward and saying, what is causing this despondency and bitterness inside? I have to stop pointing the finger outside and start looking within because the fire doesn't determine the material. It merely reveals what it is. And for the Christian here in Acts 8, the persecution didn't make them a better Christian. It only revealed the faith that was inside of them. That if I folded under the pressure, it revealed that my faith wasn't strong to begin with. That it was not in Jesus, but it was merely maybe in a healing or a meal that He gave Why I followed. But it wasn't because my life was then wanting to follow Him forever, for all of my days. And so the persecution here of this early church, it reveals something. And I mean, I've had this book in my mind for the last couple of days and I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. I mean, our book club, we met this past Saturday, yesterday. And our first book of this year for the book club was this book called Still Life with Rice by Healy Lee. And this book is written from the perspective, the vantage point of her grandmother who was born in 1912 during the colonial period of of Korea and the occupation. And it goes through and it recounts the steps of the grandmother then to the mother and then ultimately it ends just with the author being born and... Uh, a fascinating story, a recounting of the narrative of this woman's life. It wasn't fabricated. This is not fiction. This is a a true story. And seeing the the decisions that this woman made because of what she believed in, whether it was because they believed in a certain way of life, they wanted to flee a certain oppression, and they moved and took a, a young budding family to China, or whether it be they came back for a certain belief, or whether it be they marched south Because of a certain belief. That everything, every decision that was made by the people written here, it was clear they did it because they believed in something. And I was brought to tears as I was reading this book. There was one scene towards uh, the latter middle of the book, and it was of this 38, 39-year-old woman who is, again, this grandmother, Having these children, young, a 12-year-old girl, a 9-year-old boy, a 6-year-old boy, and a 1-year-old infant girl. And then deciding to take this young group of kids marching south on foot with a 6-pound bag of rice on her head. Marching south because of a belief. Because I believe in a certain way of life and if I stay here, that cannot happen. And how of such consequence that decision was. And like just reading of what they went through, I was like, man, that, I felt like that was my grandmother. I mean, it was on the cusp of the Korean War in the winter of 1950. And seeing the, the imagery and what they went through, I was like, my father was born in 1948. And my Younger uncles outside of him. My father was born on the northern side. My uncles and my aunts were born on the southern side in Seoul. And I saw my father strapped to my grandma's back going south. And it was so personal. And certain things that I didn't understand but my own family history, as I was reading this, it began to fill in a lot of those spaces. But why I share this is not just a testimony of me identifying with the generations before me. But to say this, that when we believe in something, that belief will be put to a test. That a fire will pass, whether it be the small flame of a lighter, a huge bonfire, or a flame that ravages a the town. There will be a flame that that faith will have to pass through. That my faith in my career, my job, my, the people around me, that all of these things will pass through a flame and that I need not blame the flame if my faith flutters. I need to first look inside here. What do I believe in? Do I believe? And what Gamaliel said, is this of men or is it of God? Every Christian, every church, every movement will have to answer this question. Because the fire will come. That my faith in Jesus is of great consequence. And then I see this passage and I step back a little bit. Like, I can just picture it like this movie that's playing in front of me. I'm a Christian in the early church. A good man in Stephen was just unjustly killed. And suddenly... All eyes are turning away from that death and onto me, onto my family, onto the other brothers and sisters that I worship with on a regular basis. And suddenly there is this understanding that it's not safe to stay. It's not cowardly to leave. In order for us to sustain this Christian movement, we must live on. And then they take the fewest and most precious belongings and they begin to leave their homes crying as they close the door behind them, knowing that they'll never go back to this space. And they go down foreign trails to foreign places, not knowing where they or their children will sleep. Always in fear of death, looking over their shoulder, wondering who will snatch them, take them, kill them. But marching on because they believe in Jesus. I will not recant this faith. I rather run away from my home then say, I do not believe. And so they go, and they go, and they go. The persecution scattered the Christians, it says, all over Judea and Samaria. And as I read that, I begin to see something else, which is a higher, greater, greater narrative in the book of Acts, in all of Scripture. And it tells me that God has a higher plan. Why do I say that? Because God is not a haphazard God. He works on purpose. He allows history to unfold according to a plan. That God isn't shocked when fires come up. That He's not in this emergency mode saying, oh, what do I do with my children now? I'm scrambling to find an answer for them. That He's not like that. He's not frantically dancing around heaven saying, Oh my goodness, what can I do? That He looks at history unfold on purpose. That He doesn't waste our time. He doesn't waste our pain. That He allows our pain and suffering to have a greater purpose. To be woven into a greater story. And one of the most powerful verses in Scripture that illustrate this is Romans 8. Verse 28, and we know, and I highlighted key words in each cluster of words for you. We know. It's not a guess. I know. I am certain of this. I am certain that God causes. It's not reactional here. It's not that God says, okay, I'll try to find a plan B for that. I didn't expect that, so wait a minute, let's do this. God causes Right? It's showing intentionality here. I know that God intentionally causes all, not some, everything. Every good, every bad, every dark, and every bright moment of my life. All things. That they are cohesive. That there is a symphony of sound here. You have the the master conductor seeing all of the sounds of life, all of the instruments and seasons and saying they will come in unison and work together for good, not for ill or evil. But I am certain that God intentionally causes everything of my life to be cohesive and work together for a good cause, for a good reason to those that love Him and to those that are called according to His purpose. And as you see the highlights of this, I hope that this can be certain for you, that as you look at your current season, the past seasons, or any season that will come in front of you, that you can say this, that you can be a person that loves God and wants to live out His purposes sincerely in your life. And if that is true, you can say with certainty that God will cause all things to work together for the good. God has a plan. The plan unfolds through Scripture. It's highlighted in Matthew 28, as we know this as the Great Commission. That the overarching plan of God is for the church to make disciples of all nations. Not for it to be born in Jerusalem and isolated in Jerusalem. The plan of God is to bring a Savior into the world in the Middle East, in that space, that temporal time a Messiah was born. But his plan was not confined to this geography. His plan all along was for it to go, to sprout from there to the nations and that he would use the conduit of his church, believers. This is his plan. It's fleshed out even more in Acts 1.8, right? When it says, you know you're going to receive power, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses of mine, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, he says. This is the the plan of God. And I've highlighted for you Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth, right? And here, I want you to know that there is bad blood right here. Between Judean Jews and Samaritans, there is animosity and hatred. But the plan of God is that it would be... Born of Jesus, and from that church that He would start, He would go from Jerusalem to the province of Judea, outward to the neighboring southern province of Samaria, and then from there would spring to all of the earth. There are, are a few examples of this bad blood in Scripture between Jews and Samaritans. Maybe one of the most prominent is when Jesus came to a well in Samaria, and He encountered a woman. And he spoke to this woman. And the woman was startled. It's like, wait, why do you speak to me? I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. And right off the bat you see that there is a divide that goes beyond a cultural difference. And there is animosity here. They did not even speak to one another to the point where I'm startled that you even said something. Would you sneeze in my direction? Like, what is this? Why would you do such a thing? And there's another instance in Luke 9. Jesus was setting his face to Jerusalem he's about to go there and he's understanding that this is about that time and John and and James they're like okay should we go and prepare a, a place for you and when they go the Samaritans realize that wait Jesus is just passing through and he's going to go to Jerusalem and so they didn't welcome Jesus. And they're furious, right? How dare those guys not accept us? How dare they shut the door? And they said, should we pray and call down fire to destroy them? And Jesus is like, no, you don't even know what you're of. And it shows you something. that There is this deep divide and hatred. But the plan of God is that it would go from Jerusalem ultimately to the ends of the earth but it needed to cross this divide that was so vivid and historical. It was so powerful over the culture. And if I was not willing to share this faith with a Samaritan, how in the world could it spread to the rest of the earth? If I am not willing to love the brother of my family, how can I love this stranger in my neighborhood? And the plan of God saying, make disciples of all nations, go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But no Jew wanted to go to Samaria. No Jew wanted a Samaritan to be saved. They were considered half dogs, half breads. And so how does he do this? How does God set his plan in motion If you're not going to go on purpose and of your own accord, I'll make you get there. And he makes it impossible for the Christian to stay in Judea and he scatters them through persecution. Do you see the higher level narrative here? Do you see how God acts on purpose? How he doesn't stumble over himself when there's persecution? That God can actually be an author of hardship to accomplish a greater, deeper purpose. But too often in the middle of this dark moment, we point our finger at God and say, God, if you love me, why did you bring me here? And all along God is saying, wait a minute, just be patient. I have a, a greater story here. Would you just hang on for a moment and see what I'm doing? And this is where I'm bringing you because this is my plan, my purpose. And I see that woven into this persecution, the plan of God. As I close, you guys come back. This faith in Jesus, this belief in anything in our lives, means something. And so I share with you a couple of final thoughts. If you've ever been in my office, you would have seen this little canvas-wrapped frame that I have right next to my desk, and this is what it says. Don't pray for life to be easy, but pray for yourself to be strong. And I keep that there, right next to like an eye shot. It's peripheral vision, right there, right off of my desk. But I thought that to be a good point to convey to you as I begin to close off this message. That too often... We ask for no hardship, no persecution, to sidestep it, to get through it without being scathed. But I think that's the wrong perspective of faith. That faith was meant to be tested. It was meant to pass through the fire and be refined. That suffering can make me in my faith purer if there is something of substance there. And so I encourage you to have a perspective and a vantage point of the seasons of your life that say, God, help me to be that gold that is refined through the fire, made stronger through the seasons of life, rather than trying to escape the difficulties and hardships. And the last thing that I say to you in closing is this know that your life's story is part of a greater, perfect, divine story. Don't get lost in that little speck of life, in that perspective that is so small and narrow, but get lost in the grander picture and mosaic of what God does in history and how our lives fit in that history. That we are a part of a generation and that generation is part of an era. That era is part of a greater era and epic. And as you scale back and scale back and scale back and scale back, you begin to see decades and centuries and millennia and you begin to see an overarching story that God is writing, may that perspective always be ours when we consider the span of our lives, let alone the span of a year, a month, or a bad day. That's perspective. Amen.